and welcome to the Decoding Life podcast with Catherine and Sophie. This week, we had the opportunity to speak with M. Dixon, who's the Education and Learning Officer for the Welcome Genome Campus Public Engagement. M. loved science growing up, but discovered that it was communicating the research to non-scientists that got her really excited. This led her to do a Master's in Science Communication. We had a lovely conversation which changed the way I think about what science communication is, touching on some of the challenges to discovering this path, the ways that science communication can be used to promote diversity and inclusivity, among many other things. If you want to learn about the ways in which you can use SciComs to both engage the public and improve your ability to communicate your research, this is the episode for you. Thanks for joining us here. I think the first thing I'd like to know is just a bit about uh, what your actual role is at the Genome Campus. Yeah, so (laughs) um, I'm the Education and Learning Officer for Welcome Connecting Science at the Welcome Genome Campus. So um, my main focus is working with secondary schools. We do see some primary, um, but mainly secondary schools. Um, and in normal times that would do that would mean a lot of me going out to a school um, hopefully with scientists and running sort of workshop sessions about a particular area of genome science hopefully with some activities that sort of a thing and likewise uh, school groups coming to campus having a tour of some of the lab spaces and doing some activities um, whilst they're there Um, we also cater for teachers so we do a bit of professional development uh, work for teachers um and yeah as I said some primary schools as well but yeah mainly mainly secondary groups yeah so what got you into science in the first place um I think it was mainly sort of during high school I was quite lucky that I just in generally liked school it just worked for me um I know that's not the case for everyone um and I liked lots of different subjects but I think science is an area I could see where the next stage of education would get me mm-hmm. I think when a lot of subjects like I really liked English and history but I was like surely you're just learning more of the same whereas science I could see that there was a depth that we weren't getting to at GCSE and A level that would like obviously come with sort of further study. It seems like such a practical answer as well and I guess kind of a scientific answer to what got you interested in science being like well I could see the path do you think that there was a path in knowledge but did you also see kind of a clearer path in career that you could have as a scientist compared to other things um I guess having a nurse mum I I, like I knew that she had done a bit of further study so when I was at high school she took um like she didn't go to uni uh, she went sort of nursing college um but she was really interested in specific bits of nursing and so did part-time degree stuff in London and so I I think it was just sort of seeing what she was doing and kind of understanding that there was jobs in the medical field that weren't medicine that I had yeah. like an understanding of compared to say other bits of science where I wouldn't have been able to like know what a physicist or a chemist did I kind of had an understanding of what someone in in medicine that wasn't a doctor would sort of do yeah but so then obviously you went down sort of science and like research route yeah and then you've ended up in something that isn't medicine or research right (laughs) yeah um so I guess to start with just tell us a bit about like what you did study in uni and then like where that took you my first degree was um Uh, eventually in cell biology I actually applied and started on a molecular biology degree and left on a cell biology degree um which were pretty much the same 
and I loved it. I loved learning all the science, got to the lab, realized I didn't know what was happening, wasn't very (laughs) good at it, um, and kind of just realized that I didn't love being in the lab. I wasn't particularly good at being in the lab and that the like going down that career trajectory, you had to be really good and you had to really want it. And I wasn't either of those things, um, which is then when I sort of discovered um, science communication and sort of other routes of still being involved in science, but not actually having to do the science yourself. What was your dissertation about then? Was it computational or? It was a literature review. Oh, okay. So um I had really wanted to do, yeah, anything that wasn't in a lab. Um, And looking back, I wish there had been a science communication module. The University of Dundee, which is like a 10 minute drive from St Andrews, um, they do SciComm dissertations for fourth years um, and ours didn't. And so I did a literature review, which was basically me just reading for weeks at a time and then uh, yeah, trying to work out what the hell this protein did. Um, yeah. I enjoyed it, but then I had to do like a sort of mini viva to like an oral defense of it. Um, and I remember getting questions like, oh, in a lab, how would you prove this? And You're I was like, like oh, no idea. No, not a clue. I'd ask. <laughs> this isn't I'd what ask. I, want to do. I was like, I'd ask a scientist and be like, what would you do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, not yeah, my yeah, job. Yeah. yeah. That's, um, that's so funny because I was, I think it's the same for a lot of degrees. Like the science communication side of things just isn't. like isn't there until you start going down that career path um so this would probably be a good time to pause and kind of explain a bit about what SciComm is yeah so um science communication and public engagement are sort of two halves of the same coin Mm -hmm. in my eyes so for me science communication is anything any avenue in which you're trying to share science with a group that didn't do that piece of science so um it's generally seen as being from a scientist to the general public Mm. but it could be between scientists if you've got scientists that study different things um public engagement is very much to do with engaging the public in like active research so it doesn't just have to be science so public engagement can happen in any area of uh, academia so yeah. my partner does public engagement around her work in philanthropy um, so they kind of go together as this idea of sharing science that you're doing and getting the public involved with research as it's happening yeah so then um, when you talk about science communication and sort of engaging the public what is like why I guess like what's the value of that or why do you think we need to do that um So for me, it starts with what the point of science is. And the point of science for me is to better the human understanding and the human experience. And there are more humans than just scientists. So I think (laughs) all humans should get a say. Um, The taxpayer pays for a lot of science. And so they, I don't think they should have to hear about everything because I'm not saying that everyone would want to sit and listen to everything that the government funds about but I think everyone should have the right and the access to it Um, and at the end of the day I think the public should have a say on the angle of where science is going and to do that you know you have to give them the opportunity to learn about science in the first place so um, and I think it can also be really good um, to inspire people to look at science Um, I think sometimes there's a view of like trying to try and encourage everyone into science and that's definitely not where I'm coming from I'm not trying to say that that everyone I speak to should go into science but I don't want anyone to feel like they couldn't go into science but just because they've not had the access to it or they've not had the opportunity to see what a scientist does likewise if someone sees what a scientist does it's like nope not for me that's absolutely fine but like having that like almost like informed opt-out rather than just not doing science because they never had the opportunity to yeah 
So you said that you'd be, you would have been interested in doing science communication for your final year thesis. When did you yeah. realise that that was an option for a career? Um, so I went to a Scottish university, so it was four, four years, my degree. I think in my second year, I'd come across a student-run science magazine at the university. I was like, oh, that sounds fun. Like, I've always liked writing. um, And I was like, oh, that might just be interesting. So um, I got involved with that in my second year, did a bit of writing. And over the summer, um, I did a bit of editing. And I really liked both bits of that. And then in my third year, um, I was, I think the feature editor or something um and did a lot more writing and editing for it and was like oh this is like I actually would rather be doing this than my like other work to the point that we'd be in the lab and like I was in a group we went to be in pairs for the lab but we were odd number so I was with my two friends um and I do all of their washing up and then just write articles for the student newspaper which totally isn't what I was meant to be doing but I just would always have rather spent my time on it I was then lucky enough to do an internship the summer between my third and fourth year um, at the Wellcome Trust in London in oh, their okay. um, editorial department. So I spent like three months updating two of their magazine issues, one on the cell and one on, on addiction. Um, and just, yeah, really liked putting information together in a format that was useful for people my age like I was the target audience. Yeah, so yeah. I completely knew what I would have wanted. Um and that was really the point that I was like, okay, something in this, this is definitely the closest I've got so far to finding a job that I think could do me. Yeah, yeah. sounds like it. So then you went on and you did your master's in science communication after some thought, but I guess just realizing you loved it. Yeah, well, so I realized that I enjoyed it and I the only bits I'd done were in writing. Um, and I also knew I didn't want to go into journalism because again, it, I knew that the way that the world of journalism worked wasn't going to be for me. Uh, it's very fast paced, like loads of uh, travel all the time, all of that. I just kind of knew that wasn't, again, I knew I wasn't competitive enough. Um, <laughs> and so I applied for a few grad schemes, um, had a few interviews. Didn't really. There's not many grad schemes in sort of SciComm. There's one at Wellcome and there's one at the time at Cancer Research UK. Um, and that was it really. So I applied for those. I think I had a couple of interviews, but yeah, it didn't go anywhere. Um, and I kind of realised that whilst I knew I wanted to do something that was communicating science, I didn't actually know what apart from writing I didn't really know what the other options were yeah so um I did the master's at Edinburgh uh, in science communication and public engagement because it kind it did uh you had like core modules on the sort of theory of psychom but then all of the rest of the modules were very much looking at different areas of psychom so there was one on education there was one on museums there was one on policy one on social media one on uh like science and art and illustration so it was a really great way of like a whistle stop tour of all of the big areas in psychom so that I could actually see what it what the actual bits of it were that's really cool I like never even I don't even know if I realized that you could do a master's in psychom like I think I did somehow but (laughs) that sounds amazing many yeah that sounds amazing I mean I went to Edinburgh and I didn't know that was an option yeah so yeah so I was interested about kind of the social media side of things and stuff and I guess until I started doing this podcast I didn't realize (laughs) how big of kind of a science communication community there was is it kind of a pressure do you is that like part of your job to be on social media and kind of participate in that 
Um, definitely not part of like my current job at all. Um, definitely entirely voluntary and actually something that I've really only got into the last sort of year. Mm. So like I've had a Twitter for a few years that have, you know, used it akin to my Facebook and I log in and like, great people exist and then sort of left again. Um, (laughs) before I worked here, I did a very similar job, uh, at a science center in Scotland. Um, and I was furloughed last April along with a whole load of other people um and I suddenly felt really disconnected from Psycom. I'd gone straight from my master's to working at the science center and I'd been working there two and a half years like I changed job titles a few times but that's where I had been and so I think my entire like my my sort of self-worth of being a communicator was wrapped up with my job and so like not being at work I kind of felt entirely disconnected from Psycom and was like what am I doing like do I want to be doing Psycom like you know it yeah, what do I want to be doing with it? Um, and so I just started using Twitter more as a way of like finding other science communicators and sort of finding my own like self, uh, I don't know, self-worth, self-belief in being a communicator outside of my like paid employment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think I think before I'd very much like, if I, if when I was at home, if I did anything psychomy I was like oh no I'm like I'm working and then I just sort of fall back into thinking just about work stuff yeah. whereas I wanted it just to be like well I do psychom it's just like the thing that I love doing so why can't I do that whenever I want um and it not just having to be all about work projects it can just be like stuff that I like to talk about yeah that's interesting because I wonder how many other people like scientists not necessarily people that are in psychom felt like that last year because you sort of fall away from your work environment yeah. where you're talking about science all the time with people. Like, I don't know, we used to stand in queues for coffees and you'd be chatting about science, yeah. right? Yeah. And then suddenly you're just isolated. And I wonder if people's Twitter presence increased. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But. I wonder if <laughs> there curious. needs to be like science communication about science communication being a thing. Because <laughs> I guess, <laughs> yeah. it, like at university and stuff, it seems like, so now I realize there's this huge community and people are really involved and stuff. But at university, I had no idea about like the Edinburgh Science Magazine or anything like that. So, yeah, I guess, do you think that there is kind of a a barrier if you need to know about it before you can do it? The same with kind of um, a research career. I think a little bit. I think... I'd love to see it be a thing that's introduced earlier in a science career because I think it's, if you're lucky, it's introduced at undergrad and even then it'd be sort of at the end of it. But I think really until you're a PhD student, it's not something that is sort of, you know, public engagement is not something that's mm. massively talked about everywhere. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it's seen as like this extra thing that's going to take up extra time on top of all the other work that you have to do, which I think is completely a realistic uh you know thought process to go through but it's also a massive shame so I think it'd be really nice to see it be something that is introduced sort of much earlier on so that it doesn't feel like this whole extra separate thing it's just like oh it's something that you can do as part of science because if anyone's if you're a scientist that have ever presented at a conference you've done science communication it's just that's maybe not the label you'd have given it yeah. yeah, I wonder, I don't, it just seems like there isn't enough education about SciComm for people that don't want to specifically do SciComm anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think as well, those are the moments when you get really excited about the stuff you've done, right? When you present it and you get like good feedback. So, and yeah, it. I'm a bit jealous of like, it seems like you have 
constant kind of like motivation I guess because you've got that like cause and I think when you combine like science communication with the research you're doing then you constantly have like you know what motivates you to do what you're doing if you know what I mean it's quite easy to just fall into like looking at code and stuff and not really thinking about (laughs) why you're doing it crying over your phone yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah um what do you think so this has been just this year right it's been a massive year for visibility for scientists like you must have opinions on poor quality and high quality science communication that might have occurred uh, I mean, why the government hasn't, yeah, hired a better psychometer by now is... Yeah, it's mind, <laughs> like, I don't know, it's mind-blowing. me. Um, I think it's shown the importance of um, having... I think, yeah, I think maybe before the pandemic, um, I would have maybe have said that, you know, in an ideal world, you don't need science communicators. Maybe you have scientists that are just good enough. That, you know, uh, it's, it's structured into science enough that scientists can just do it themselves. Mm. But I think this year has shown that you do need people that it's not just about understanding the science, it's understanding the people at the other side. And yeah. you do need people that sit between the two. And that I think scientists can be wonderful science communicators. It's not a, not that I don't think scientists can, can do psychom, but I think that there's only so much time they can give to it when their job is to be a scientist and to research X, Y, or Z. So I think it, there's definitely shown the need for people that can see both sides of the like of the equation they can see the science but they can see the sort of what the public understand or don't understand yeah. or public perceptions um and can yeah find a way <laughs> of bridging bridging the two i mean yeah. it's just so hard to know what people that aren't deep in science know and don't know when you are really deep in it yourself yeah and yeah. like how do you explain to the general population how immunology works from like a basic perspective and like that's something that I think somebody can be an amazing immunologist but potentially not be great at that yeah yeah like I describe my job a lot of the time as a translator just because it's it's all in English but I'm translating it to a level and a a context that a different person might understand so I guess on Twitter and stuff you speak quite a bit about kind of the culture surrounding science and share quite a lot about that um I think over the last year everyone's well I guess I've like learned a lot and there's aspects that I wouldn't have even thought about are there any kind of certain aspects of inclusivity that you're trying to influence through what you do um I always have I always try and have like a EDI hat on um I'm a queer person and so for me that means I can't take that hat off um and that's just how I feel about it personally um and so I try and use that lens to make sure that what I'm doing is inclusive but in terms of like practice in terms of how we talk about science because I think often science and like biology especially can be seen at odds with a lot of these sort of social justice issues it can be seen as almost like contradictory when I honestly believe it's they never are it's how we present the science and I think Mm especially biology biology is messy and the job of biologists is to try and make it neater and sometimes we try so hard to make it neat that we provide too little of boxes Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and we oversimplify to a point that we're like well these are the two options a or b and if you don't exist in those boxes then you don't exist and I think that's often um, I think there was a uh, I can't remember who it was now um, some 
lecture I went to online that said it's not it's not the science that is, that's bad it's the way that we categorize the science that can be bad um and so trying to like yeah use science as a platform for social justice I think is really important because I think science does actually contribute to it in a way that can often come across the other way around yeah do you have any specific um like any specific ways that you think people should change their communication or like educational opportunities for um scientists to practice more inclusive communication because we are all science communicators obviously in some sense um for me it just starts with really small things and sort of trying to get rid of societal norms trying to pull apart the difference between the core science and the phrasing that is a societal norm and so the my like very basic uh, example for biology is talking about inheritance and that we would say if you were explaining to like a child or to anyone where their DNA comes from someone's but default answer is probably oh you get half from your mum and half from your dad and that's not socially true but it's not biologically true either you get your DNA from each biological parent that might not be a mum and a dad and it might not be people that you're socially related to so even just like pulling that bit apart you've not you know you've not had to completely reteach something you've told the the scientific you know the the truth of it but you've also included people that may have a like have step parents may have two parents may have one parent um by just simply swapping the phrasing out a little bit um and i think it's until you start deliberately trying to spot that in your language and change that in your language it's really easy to say things that aren't wrong or offensive but maybe that just tweaking can make a little bit more inclusive Mm. as you go yeah are there any do you think there are any good resources that people should kind of get involved with to help themselves because I guess we should take responsibility for educating ourselves and I found Twitter quite helpful but are there any other resources that you'd recommend to people there is one that's uh, it's called something like Queering Biology, and I will have a look for it sort of uh, after this and I can send it to you. Um, but it is one like that where it tries to pull apart the difference between the sort of social norm of what we would say and actually the biology of it and actually looking at where biology itself is what we might call socially queer, stuff that isn't a binary of sex or gender, things that aren't necessarily heterosexual um, and where nature just is like that anyway um, mm. to try, because that's another big one, is us putting like our cultural values onto when we talk about wildlife because yeah. um, there are a lot of uh, instances of non-monogamy of same-sex relationships or same-sex mating in like the animal kingdom if you if you're presenting that oh mummy lion and daddy lion great but then to 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 then actually be able to go into the full depths it's almost like you're having to break the rules of biology and again that's not how biology works biology is very messy yeah yeah for sure it's well said thank you (laughs) um so you mentioned being queer in science and i was just wondering if kind of because you work in science communication do you ever feel like there's a pressure put on you to be responsible for changing things whereas it should be people's responsibilities to educate themselves um a little bit of both um I've definitely worked places where people higher up haven't understood why I'd want to be visibly queer like they've just Mm. not understood why it's important um they'd be like you know well 
kids see it in the media and they think it's fine so like why talk about it and I'm like well <laughs> okay you've not quite like <laughs> I, I like a good point that you like that you think we fix the issues that that's great <laughs> but there's also all these other things yeah um and then I think actually the the sort of team that I'm in now and the people that I'm working with now are very reflective that in general as a team we're a very white team Mm. um and that science communicators tend to come from a middle class background so that we you know we don't represent the audiences that we're speaking to um and so I think as a whole team and everyone I've come across so far at the campus has sort of had that mindset and so actually it's felt more comfortable to be like like as a queer person I'm happy to chip in on like this bit yeah Yeah. (laughs) I obviously can't speak on all like um uh marginalized backgrounds i'm a very white person from a middle class area of the south of england like i absolutely cannot speak for most uh like marginalized communities but here's like one bit i can (laughs) chip into a little bit um yeah i I, other than that um and i think again sort of being on twitter there's been more people being more vocal Mm. um and definitely people that have said you know they've come out um sort of more more publicly and I've had people messaging being like why are you talking about this you're a scientist just stick to the science and I think if like nothing else sums up why we should be talking about it it's exactly <laughs> that sort of comment yeah yeah 100%. you are the reason we are doing this <laughs> yeah, yeah um, I and I, I'm wondering so what's the in SciComm at the genome campus what's the gender balance like or like in your experience in general um I think on the whole so our team does tend to be mainly women. Um, I'm trying to think of like connecting science wider, I think is a bit more balanced. Um, yeah, interestingly, I think a lot of, like a, like a lot of places that I've been, it's been quite female centric. Mm. And I and so discussions I've had with people, this is not at all a legitimate statistic or, anywhere, or anything, but that I, me and people that I sort of know in, in the sphere, there's a lot of queer people and there's a lot of women. Um, and we have speculated that because a lot of women and queer people don't feel comfortable in STEM, but want mm. to be engaged in STEM, that a lot of people have ended up in cycle yeah. um, because they've not felt supported in a lab space, but still want to be in that sphere. Um, but then also, I think teaching also biases towards women as well. And obviously yeah. mm-hmm. some areas of psychom are quite sort of teaching-like. Yeah, I could also see it from the side of if you're working in the field and then you realize there's a problem, you want to go out and fix it when it's happening to you so it doesn't happen to the people who come after you. So then you might end yeah. up working in SciComm as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah How has um has engagement changed at all kind of geographically? Because I guess the Welcome Genome Campus is based in Cambridge. Kingston. I guess. Yes, yeah, the Welcome Genome <laughs> Campus is based in Hinkston, which is next to Cambridge. So I guess people around that area already have quite a lot of access to science. Have you seen like a shift in the, like how far you can reach in the past year? Yeah, we, so we very much targeted or try to target our sort of local schools. Um, so when I, I joined the team in October and sort of very much looked through who would normally be interacting with us and therefore who's missing out right now because they can't come mm-hmm. to us and we can't come to them because of the pandemic. And the majority of that were GCSE and A-level classes that were between an hour and two from campus. That mm-hmm. was our sort of main people that were coming. So that's who I designed my webinar series for and presumed would come because they would usually come and so here was the digital version of what we had previously been offering um and so we didn't 
target anyone other than those people i mean we yeah. it was sort of just online so anyone could sign up um and actually we've got a massively international reach which i never expected we have um there's quite a few students from a particular college in india that come quite a lot there's a couple of people from maryland in the states that come quite a lot um we get people from there's a school in Peru um, that filled out our, that filled out one of our feedback forms. <laughs> that again, we had very much written, presuming people that were filling it in were our local schools. And one of the questions was like, you know, when do you next think you'd be able to visit us with COVID restrictions? <laughs> and they were like, seeing as we're on the other side of the world, probably never. Wow. <laughs> and I just like that they'd still filled it out. Yeah. So um, it's been awesome, just like accidentally picking up an international audience. Um, mm which is again one of the benefits of having done everything online the last year yeah Yeah. it's like leveling the playing field a bit it's like not a privilege you would think of or I it wouldn't come to mind first like having a school that's near a huge science center gives you an advantage right and that's not something I would have necessarily thought of (laughs) until it's like oh the playing field's leveled and now actually anyone can come yeah yeah that's (laughs) That's so so nice yeah Do you mind telling a bit about what the seminar is? Yeah, so it's called Genomics Light and we run them, I run them um, on a sort of rolling basis in like a four block. So we take a different topic that's broadly covered um, by the sort of Welcome Genome Campus's aims. um, And in a series of four, we look at how genomics informs that. So like our in-context session, we then have like a lab-based session where we sort of try and explore like literally how would you research this in a lab um, and trying to show a bit of uh, a few lab tours or lab images to make up for the fact that obviously they can't come and see the labs right now. We then do a a big question session. So trying to look at like an ethical, societal or sort of future direction of the field Um, because I'm keen for it not just to be like a theoretical thing. I want to start having conversations about the bigger implications about um, genomics. And then we do a careers panel um, where we try and bring together people of different levels and different areas within the field um, to to sort of just tell the students a bit about their career path and then take questions from the students. So at the moment we're doing cancer research. We've previously done uh, the Human Genome Project, Infectious Disease, uh, Human Genetic Variation and our last block for this year will be Biodiversity and Evolution in sort of June and July. Very cool. That sounds really fun. We'll also like link details about that below. Awesome. (laughs) Um... So you're working on this genomics light thing for the genome campus at the moment. Do you have any sort of next goals or intentions um, with your position there or? I think a lot of it is sort of seeing what the next year is going to be like um, just in general. Um, We're, yeah, very much trying to work out how much to keep. um, We obviously want to keep some online stuff going, but we also need to start some in-person stuff. So I think it's sort of balancing how much of each so we don't lose the benefits of online. But obviously I can't run the entire program I'm running now and then also go out and see yeah. loads of school kids so I think a lot of it is finding that balance between like between the two um and I think that's it'll be exciting to see like how genomics like changes because that's the thing I started on like day one of working here that was like the first thing I started doing so it'll be interesting to see how that changes for next year it would yeah. seem a shame to lose your new global audience. I know. So, the people yeah. in Peru will be so sad. Um, <laughs> I was wondering, so like looking back, do you have kind of a proudest achievement or a standout moment where you kind of thought, this is like really good what I'm doing? 
Um, I think just like a few individual like workshops that I've done over like my career. Um, I went out to a school in quite rural Fife, very tiny class, like 10 of them. Um, and they, 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 they had access to funding because they met certain criteria, all of that fun stuff. Um, I said, look, I've got, these are the workshops I have at the moment. Um, like, does any of them sound interesting to you? And they picked this one about um, Mars, which was my favorite workshop at the time. Um, and they said, actually, what we're doing is climate change um, on Earth. But the Mars one sounds good because then we can link in, um, you know, these ideas of moving to Mars. And I was like, yeah, great. The workshop's usually 45 minutes. I can give you an hour and a half and we can just like see where <laughs> it goes. Um, and because the kids have been sort of primed on that, that they were doing climate change but I was coming to talk about Mars they had so many really good questions where they'd like taken what they'd learned and then like obviously there's a lot in the news and in media about like moving to Mars and so they just had loads of great questions Mm. um and they were also old enough that um they'd ask like ethical questions and I won't shy away from it um any more than is age appropriate so they were saying like should we move to Mars like you know should we be changing it and I was like well these these are questions we should be like answering these you know if we've already destroyed one planet and now we have to move should we be moving because we've destroyed one should we be terraforming mars and they were kind of like i don't and they were like having a really good like healthy debate in class and it was really nice to see them sort of scaffold those ideas and be like hang on yeah (laughs) this is this all sounds well and good until you like take a step back and think about it and i was like exactly and this this can be your job that you can go off and like do that as a career yeah Yeah. Um, that's so reward it's so rewarding teaching and getting feedback yeah yeah definitely yeah. um is there any advice you would give someone like a student that maybe wanted to get into science communication but doesn't have that offering at their university or hasn't doesn't know anybody in high school or anything um yeah so I've been having this conversation with a few people and I've ended up with a big chunky twitter thread of um my sort of go-to uh yeah psychom 101 there was a really really great um like guide to science communication published in the last couple of weeks that's really really like easy to read and goes through like all of the major areas in science communication which like everything from like working with schools to policy writing to podcasting um as a really nice overview of like here's stuff that exists um which i think can be half the battle of knowing like what can you do um there's also loads of like, especially in the last year, right? There's been loads of online opportunities to get involved with. So, um, if you know, you can like try out blogging. You could try out uh, making videos. There's so much stuff that you can just like have a go at and see where it goes. Um, if you're at a university, I'd recommend being becoming a STEM ambassador. So it's free. It gets you a DBS check, which is really important if you ever want to work with kids or vulnerable adults. Um, it gives you like. CV points because it's like a nationally accredited thing that you can earn up like years and hours on um and they have loads of training through like FutureLearn as well so um I did loads of FutureLearn courses while I was on furlough some from the National STEM Centre about like science teaching um and science education um I think like because of the pandemic and stuff moving online I think it's got a bit easier to just have a go at doing a bit of psychom um and as much as it's almost when you know it's become more saturated as a like there are there's a lot out there I think that kind of it would definitely make me feel less nervous because it's like well no one might see it and that's okay but like (laughs) you've tried you've made a start and even if like five people see it then you've like 
you've made a little step into in just having a go. Yeah. Uh, I guess, do you have any next goals that are maybe psychom related or maybe not psychom related just in life in general? Um, I would like to do like uh, teaching of psychom more mm. when I have done more of it. Um, I wouldn't feel particularly qualified to tell people that much about, <laughs> about psychom uh, at this point in my career, but um, I think that would be a really cool... Like, and I, I do get to sort of work with scientists and sort of help them develop their skills, but being involved in sort of um, like uni level yeah. psychom teaching, I think would be a really cool, like future me option. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I'll leave that on the table for me in a few years. You can start yeah, that. Like that. You can start that master's program at St. Andrews. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Just be like, guys, get on it. <laughs> Cool. Thank you so much um, for coming and talking to us. It's such an interesting side of science that we haven't really talked about so far, but I guess we've kind of been doing it with the podcast. (laughs) Should have talked to you sooner. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Decoding Life podcast. We'll be releasing our next episode in a couple of weeks. If you enjoyed this one, why not follow us on Instagram at Decoding Life Podcast or Twitter at Decoding Life Pod to see what our next episode will be about. Make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of the next time we released an episode. We would like to thank the public engagement team at the Wellcome Sanger Institute for their help and funding of this project. In particular, Alexandra Canet Font and Dr. Elena Pants for their guidance and advice through the entire process. We would also like to thank Piv Gopalasingam for thoroughly researching our guests prior to interviews, as well as Rick Keynes for our beautiful logo. Thank you.